Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life, so we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at www.christchapelcollege.org and on Instagram at Christ Chapel College. y'all. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Pretty good. All right, let's go. Uh, Jonah chapter one. If you've been following along with us, we are still in chapter one. Uh, Jonah chapter one. We'll be hanging out there again uh, this morning. So uh, there are a bunch of questions that you get asked in college on a pretty consistent basis, right? Uh, Questions like, what's your major? Uh, Where are you from? If you're a freshman, like, what's your dorm? If you're a senior, what are you doing after college, right? If uh, you see your grandma, hey, are you dating anybody? If you say no, have you tried to date anybody, right? You're like, grandma, I've tried, thank you, um, right? Like there's all these questions that you get asked in college on a really uh, consistent basis. And for me, when I was in college, there was one question out of all of the questions that I couldn't stand. And it was the question, what are you involved in? Anybody else is like, I hate that question? Like when people say, hey, what are you involved in? I hated that question uh, primarily for two reasons. One, um, I always felt like they weren't curious. They were just trying to one-up me, right? It's like, oh, you're in, only in seven things. Hmm, that must be nice to have so much free, free time. Like, whoa, whoa, easy, right? Um, so like one, like they're just trying to one-up you, right? But two, what, what really kind of bugged me about that question is I felt like people were trying to establish my identity based on what I did. I feel like people were trying to kind of learn what I did so that they could specifically kind of put me in a box and say, oh, that's, what, that's who Josh is. That's what Josh does, right? And it kind of based on what I did, it's kind of what defined who I was, right? And I say that because I think oftentimes in college, we can kind of get to a place where our identity and specifically the way that we kind of navigate life as a result of kind of who we think we are kind of comes from these sort of labels, right? So let me uh, explain it like like this. Um, A few years ago, a fraternity got kicked off campus for selling weapons and drugs out of their fraternity house. Um, Side note, TCU does not like it when you sell drugs and weapons out of your house. Just general rule of thumb, right? Um, And so I would get lunch fairly often with uh, the guy who was in charge of kind of bringing them back, back on. He was their, uh, their brand new pres- president, and he was really excited about kind of changing their whole reputation. And I'll never forget this one conversation that he and I had. We are having lunch, and I asked him, I was like, hey, man, you know, how does that happen? How do you get to a place where you're selling weapons out of your fraternity house? He said, here's what's crazy to me. He said, no one comes into college thinking that's going to be their legacy. No one comes into college thinking, hey, you know what? On my college bucket list is to get kicked off campus by selling weapons out of my house. He says, no one thinks that way, right? He said, however, what I've found that actually happens is that really good dudes make really bad decisions because they embrace kind of the stereotype or the kind of identity of who we are. And so guys will kind of believe, oh, well, if we are that fraternity, then I'll become that kind of guy. Right, if people already think this is who I am, that I'm just going to prove them right. And, and they kind of adopt this identity, and really awesome guys make really awful decisions. And it's just kind of this embracing of the identity that people kind of place on them. And when he said that, I, I thought, man, that's so insightful, but I think it's so true. 
Because I think oftentimes in college, what typically happens is that we come to a place where we make decisions, where we become people that we never wanted to become or make decisions that we never wanted to make because we've allowed an identity to kind of shape us. And wherever our identity lies kind of shapes how we navigate life. And I tell, tell you that because today we're going to read in Jonah's story, um, we're going to find out where Jonah's identity was, or Jonah placed his identity. And what we find is that all of Jonah's running from God, all of these kind of boneheaded decisions that Jonah makes are all rooted in where his identity is. And the reason why I'm, I'm so excited about today is because for us, I want us to kind of Based on Jonah's story, take an internal look, do a kind of an internal investigation, figure out, and where is my identity truly placed? Because my guess is that if you were to really figure out where your identity is, it brings so much light to why you do the things that you do. Because I think, if we're honest, maybe there's some of us in the room that when you think about where you are in life, maybe you are in a place that you never expected to be. Maybe you've made choices that you never expected to make. You're becoming a person that you never expected to become. And when we really look in, we find, man, I'm, I'm being driven by this identity of, of kind of where I rank all these things in my life. And so for us, I want, I want us to just spend some time just kind of diving in and trying to figure out, man, where is our identity? Where do we uh, find all that stuff in our own life uh, so that we can maybe kind of reorient accordingly? So um, we'll be in Jonah uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 7. But before we dive in, let me uh, just kind of give you some background if you're just now jumping in uh, with us. Uh, Jonah is a prophet. Uh, he is kind of the mouthpiece of God. Uh, God asks him to go uh, preach a message of repentance to the Assyrians uh, in the capital city of Nineveh. Um, and Jonah hears God's command, hears God's kind of call on his life, and he gets in a boat and sails to Tarshish, which is the furthest point in the world that they know about. I mean, he just runs the complete opposite direction. And in large part because the Assyrians were just these wicked, deplorable people that had done heinous things to the people of Israel. So he hops on a boat, runs the opposite way, and God sends the storm. In fact, the text says that God hurls a, a, a mighty storm on the sea. And, um, and because of his disobedience, the this, this, this storm comes. These sailors that are professional uh, sailors are just freaking out. They've never seen a storm like this. Um, and they are just absolutely just distraught, fearing for their life um, because of the storm. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 7. Let me read this to you. It says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. All right, there is a lot in this passage, and so let me begin to kind of break this down for us. Um, they, the sailors are, have kind of come to conclude that it's the sin of somebody. Someone has offended one of the gods, and so they're trying to figure out who caused the storm. So they cast lots, which is essentially like rolling a pair of dice. Um, and, and it was this kind of ancient way of, of, of trying to figure out kind of the specifics of God's will. And even the, the ancient Hebrews would, would cast lots, believing that God's hand was kind of behind the casting of lots. And so they are kind of rolling dice, casting lots, to try and figure out who it is. And the lot falls on Jonah. Now, 
I want you to envision this scenario for a second. Because Jonah has not said a word this entire time. This entire time, Jonah has been very standoffish. Jonah has kept to himself. Jonah is that kind of eerie, quiet guy that kind of stands by himself in the corner, right? When, when the storm comes, Jonah's asleep at the bottom. When they ask him to pray to his God, he says nothing. Then all of a sudden, they are fearing for their life, trying to figure out where did this storm come from. And of course, the lot falls on the quiet guy in the corner. So all of a sudden, there's probably this eeriness that kind of sets in on the boat where you begin to think, it's always the quiet guy, right? It's always the guy in the back, right? And he, like, and so all of a sudden, everyone's like, all right, what's happening? And notice, they start asking him identity questions. They start saying, all right, cool, so, like, what do you do? And where are you from? And what people group do you belong to? They start asking him all these identity questions, right? Now, here's what I think is, is really interesting. For us, the questions that they ask, right, like what do you do, where are you from, uh, who do you belong to, right, those, those are small talk questions for us, right? Like, like those are kind of small talk questions that you ask at a party or ask at like a networking event, right? And so it's a really bizarre time to start up a small talk, right? Like you're fearing for your life. This massive storm is, is coming. You think you're about to die. So why on earth would they begin to just small talk with Jonah? That makes no sense, right? Well, it makes total sense because these aren't small talk questions for them. They're asking identity questions because in this time, they, they believe that if they can figure out who he is, they can figure out whose he is. So when they ask, who are you, they're really asking, whose are you, right? Because in this time, they, they um, oftentimes in ancient cultures, would have a guy that was kind of based on a geographical region or a people group. Right, so what they're trying to understand is, like, what, which God do you serve? Which God did you offend? And so they start asking him these kind of identity questions to figure out not who are you, but whose are you? And notice what Jonah says, because Jonah answers in a really bizarre way. If you look, look at the way that they ask questions, they ask in a very specific order. They ask first about his purpose. They say, what's your occupation? And then they ask, not purpose, but they ask place, or where are you from? And then lastly, they ask, of what people do you belong, right? So purpose, place, people. But when Jonah answers, Jonah reverses. He reverses the way that he answers. So, so, so Jonah's response should have been, I am a servant of Yahweh. I'm a servant of the God of Israel, and I live in the land of Israel, and I'm a Hebrew, right? But that's not what Jonah says. Jonah flips it, and he answers first. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, what, what scholars will say is that his kind of reordering, his kind of re-ranking of how he, he answers this question reveals essentially where Jonah's allegiance is. Because they're trying to figure out whose are you, and what he says is, first off, I'm a citizen of the nation of Israel, and I follow God. And what this reveals is that there's something going on in Jonah's heart that, that makes total sense why he would run the way that he ran. Because all of a sudden, if Jonah is a citizen of Israel first, and then a servant of God second, it makes total sense why he would run. Because when God says, hey, I want you to go to your enemies and preach a message of repentance, I want you to call them to repentance so that I might show mercy to them. There's no category for that in his mind. I mean, these people are wicked. And so because his loyalty and his allegiance is to the nation of Israel first, 
he runs the opposite way because those two things can't coexist. He can't be a good Hebrew and preach a message of repentance to his enemies. And so why I tell you that is because for us, the question that I want us to figure out is then where do our allegiances lie? Because what we see in this text is that allegiance shapes action. That allegiance shapes action. What you are allegiant to first and foremost will shape the way that you navigate the world around you. It will shape what you do and specifically what you don't do, right? Um, let me uh, explain it like this. Um, in 1924, uh, there was a British Olympian named Eric Little. Um, this is a, a photo of him. Uh, Nice-looking Brit there. And, uh, and so Eric Little uh, was favored to win the 100. He was a guy known uh, to be incredibly fast, and, and he was favored to win the 100. The problem was the 100 was on a Sunday, and Eric was a very devout Christian. He actually went on to be a missionary in China after the um, Olympics. Um, but Eric felt this conviction that, man, Sunday is the Lord's day. Sunday is a day where, man, it is a Sabbath. It is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Like, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to run. And so Eric decides before he gets to the Olympics that he's just not going to run on a Sunday. Now, that's crazy, right? Like, you've been working your entire life to win a gold medal in your specific event, and he just decides, man, I follow the Lord, and I just feel a conviction that I'm not supposed to run on Sunday. So he backs out of the race, and he just doesn't run. Fun fact of how this story ends, um, he doesn't run in the 100, but he ends up getting to run in the 400 because it's not on a Sunday. Now, if you've ever run track, uh, believe it or not, I ran track. I know it doesn't look like it now, but I did. Um, and so if you've ever run track, uh, the 100 and the 400 are both considered sprints, but they're drastically different races. Right? You do not train the same way for the 100 and the 4, right? So Eric runs the 4, a, a, a race that from, a, from his like, time standpoint, wasn't really competitive in that race, but he ran it, right? And when he runs the 400 in the Olympics, the day that's not on a Sunday, he actually wins the gold medal and sets a world record for the fastest time that was held for the next 12 years. It's pretty cool, right? Now, the reason why I tell you that story is not because if you obey God, God's going to give you a gold medal. That's not what I'm saying. I tell you that because when you look at the life of Eric Little, he was a follower of Jesus first and an athlete second. He was a follower of Jesus first and a member of the British Olympic team second. Now, it would have been so easy for him to say, man, this is what I've been like, working my whole life for. Like, 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 I'm an athlete who happens to follow Jesus. I'm a member of the British Olympic team who happens to follow Jesus. But it was reversed. He said, no, I'm a follower of Christ first. And so that allegiance, that allegiance to Jesus first and foremost shaped the way that he navigated the world, even if that meant giving up a gold medal, right? And so for us, it works the exact same way. Where our allegiance lies, where we kind of rank in our identity and what we do and what we follow and who we follow shapes everything about our life, shapes how we navigate the world. So the question for us that we need to, need to begin to ask ourselves is who are we ultimately allegiant to? Who are we ultimately allegiant to? And the reason why the answer to that question is so important is because if you are allegiant to anyone or anything other than Jesus, you will find yourself in places that you never expected to be and maybe even at odds with the creator of the universe. You see, when I look at the story of Jonah, I have a level of compassion because Jonah was just trying to be a good Hebrew. Jonah was just trying to be a good Israelite. 
I mean, the Assyrians were bad dudes. The idea of them receiving mercy was unfathomable. He was simply trying to be a good Hebrew. But in his running, he found himself on a boat in the middle of a storm at odds with the creator of the universe. And so my hope is that we are people that that place our allegiance first and foremost to Jesus and that everything else follows after that. So so how do we do this? Um, I want to close by just kind of giving us two uh, specific applications. Um, First, um, is I think that we need to identify who our ultimate allegiance is to. Identify who your ultimate allegiance is to. And what I mean is this. Um, When you think about your life, are you ultimately allegiant to Jesus or to something else? If you were to kind of rank your identity, who, who are you most allegiant to? Is it Christ or is it your fraternity, your sorority, your family, your friends, an organization, a relationship? I don't know. And if you're thinking, like, I don't really know how to kind of figure that out, a question to ask is, what is your greatest fear? What is your greatest fear? And what I mean is that when you think about, man, the thing that would just, man, make you come unraveled, the thing that terrifies you, what is that? Like, are you most afraid of being alone? Are you afraid of being on the outside of your friend group? Are you afraid of being the black sheep of your fraternity or your sorority? Are you afraid of disappointing your parents? Are you afraid of being seen as a failure? Or, and are you terrified of blatantly ignoring God's call on your life? And are you afraid of what would happen is if you just continually ignored the voice of God? Are you afraid of a jaded and callous heart that might come from a life where you just completely tune out the God of the universe? Are you afraid of missing out on the will of God for your life? Your answer to those questions tends to reveal where your ultimate allegiance lies. Because if your greatest fear is being on the outside of your friend group, then your ultimate allegiance is to your friends. It's not a bad thing to have an allegiance to your friends. We'll talk more about that in a a second. But if your ultimate allegiance is to your friends, then that will navigate, that will shape the way that you navigate the world. If your greatest fear is to disappoint your family, family is awesome, it's amazing but it reveals that your ultimate allegiance is to your family before it is to Jesus. And we can go on and on and on. So we need to initially identify, man, where is my ultimate allegiance lie? Now, some of you might hear, hear that, and you know. Like, it's not a hard question for you. And you think about your life and think, ah, like, like, I know that my, my allegiance isn't to Jesus first and foremost. Maybe you know that it should be, or you even want it to be. But to actually take that step and to actually say, man, I'm going to follow him first and foremost where it shapes everything that I do. I mean, that's scary. <laughs> like, that's a, a nerve-wracking thing. Like, that's not lost on me. But if that's you and you kind of feel like you're kind of right there and you're not totally sure how to make that step, I mean, can I just encourage you with, with something? Pledging allegiance to Jesus doesn't make life easier, but it makes life more simple. Pledging allegiance to Christ doesn't make life easier, but it makes it simple, right? For Eric Little, right, his choice, I can imagine, was not an easy choice. 
to give up a chance to, to run for a gold medal, the thing that he'd been working for his entire life, that wasn't an easy choice, but it was a simple choice. Because he understood the conviction that God had laid on his heart. And he's like, yeah, it's an easy choice, or it's a simple choice to make. It's just not an easy choice to make. I think that oftentimes when you look at your life, if your life just feels chaotic and it feels messy and just weirdly complicated, like, 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 there, like there's just drama swirling around at all times, maybe it's because your life needs a little bit more simplicity that comes from knowing the word of God. Because oftentimes the word of God, like it's, it's clear. It's simple. It's clear. It's not easy to follow. It's incredibly difficult, but it's simple. And so, I mean, you can totally live a life where life is just confusing and messy. And my hope is that we understand that following Christ and saying, hey, my allegiance is to him first and foremost, doesn't make life easy, but it makes life significantly more simple. Right? So first, we need to identify where our ultimate allegiance lies. But second is this. I want to challenge you to let your allegiance to Jesus shape your other allegiances. And that's a wordy statement, so let me explain. But let your allegiance to Jesus shape your other allegiances. Um, I want to be clear. We have multiple allegiances in our life, and that's a good thing, right? Um, I have an allegiance to Jesus, but I also have an allegiance to my wife. I have an uh, allegiance to my family of origin. I have an allegiance now to my in-laws. I have an allegiance to Christ Chapel. I have an, I have an allegiance to Saul Solomon. I have an, like, I mean, it's, it's the best. I don't care what you say, it is the best. Like, I will ride or die Saul Solomon all day, right? But, so I have all these different allegiances in my life, right? And so what happens is that um, I think oftentimes we kind of have this weird idea that to follow Christ, to have our allegiance be to him first and foremost, means that we isolate ourselves from all these other relationships. And that's not true. Like, like, like being allegiant to Jesus first and foremost does not mean that we isolate ourselves from all these other relationships. It means that our relationship with Jesus shapes how we navigate all the other relationships in our life, right? Um, so if you are uh, a member of your family, right? I've heard a lot of stories over the years of people whose families are just kind of hostile to their, their faith in Christ, right? Like, if, if that's your scenario, it doesn't mean that you don't go home for Christmas, right? Like, you're still a part of your family, but your allegiance to Jesus shapes the way that you love and interact and serve with your family, right? So we have all these different allegiances, and our allegiance to Christ should shape how we uh, interact with all of those other relationships. Um, uh, Miroslav Volf, that's a handful of a name, but he says, says this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says, Christians can never be, first of all, Asians or Americans, Russians or Tootsies, and then Christians. When they respond to the call of the gospel, they put one foot outside their culture while the other remains firmly planted in it. Christianity is not flight from one's original culture, but a new way of living within it because of the new vision of peace and joy in Christ. And so what I want you to understand in all of this is that when we call you to say your allegiance should be to Jesus first and foremost, it doesn't mean that you're leaving everything else behind. It doesn't mean that you're bailing on your fraternity or your sorority or you're dipping out of your organizations or your commitments. No, no, no. It means that you have one foot planted here and one foot planted here. And you say, man, how can I kind of re reframe the way that I navigate the world? How can my love for Christ shape how I do everything else around me? Right? And so maybe you're like, I don't know what that means. 
I don't know your story. I don't know what that means for you either. Um, so maybe that means just sitting down with the Lord and saying, all right, how does my, my love for Christ shape my involvement in my fraternity? How does it shape my involvement in my sorority? How does it shape my involvement in an organization? How do I be a Neely fellow and a follower of Christ? How do I be an RA and a follower of Christ? How do I do all these things? What does that look like? And spend some time processing with the Lord, processing with friends, and coming to a place where we can figure out, man, how does my allegiance to Jesus shape all the other allegiances in my life? Now, let me close by saying, saying this. None of this is possible if you don't know Jesus. You can't pledge allegiance to Jesus if you don't know Jesus. And so my prayer this week has been, I mean, if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus, that, that changes today. And the reality is that we don't pledge allegiance to Christ because it's the good, right Christian thing to do. We don't pledge allegiance to Jesus because we know we should. I mean, we pledge allegiance to Jesus. He is first and foremost in our kind of ranking of identity because we have this overwhelming awe of what he has done for us on the cross. That the gospel has transformed our heart in such a way that when we look at the cross, we see that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, humbled himself. That he took on flesh, that he walked amongst, that he lived the life that you and I could not live. And then he allowed his own creation to beat him, to mock him, to spit on him, and to ultimately take his life so that he could die for the sins of the very people murdering him. And when we understand the gravity of what Christ has done for us on the cross, I don't have an allegiance to him because that's what I should do. I have an allegiance to him because man, my life is so just blown away by the grace of God on my life. So, man, if you don't know that grace, if that's not a reality in your life, man, I would love to talk with you about what that means. And don't leave here today if, if that's not made right today because this is not a, oh, you should. This is a, we get to pledge allegiance to a God who loves us despite us, and that should stir our affections in phenomenal ways. So again, my hope today is that we pledge allegiance to Jesus first and foremost, not because we should, but because he is good and gracious and kind, and that allegiance shapes everything else about our life. Let me pray. Father, you are, um, you are unbelievably kind to us. And Father, I, it's not lost on me that there are moments in time when this can just sound like white noise. That our identity is in you, that we fo follow you first and foremost, that you rank number one on our list or however we want to say it. God, I also know from experience that there are so many times that when I run from you, it's because I value other things and I end up in places that I never wanted to be, making decisions that I never wanted to make. And Father, my hope is that we trust you enough to say, all right, God, I'm going to follow you no matter what it costs me. I'm going to follow you even when it's uncomfortable, when it's inconvenient, because I understand that you are worthy of our devotion. You are worthy of our praise. And so, Father, for my brothers and sisters in the room today, they look at their life and they say, man, I like you, but I'm not following you. 
for my brothers and sisters in the room who say, man, I like the idea of Jesus, but I'm not following him. I'm not devoted to him. My identity has nothing to do with him. God, will you stir our hearts? God, will you bring a change? Will you do something in our hearts today that we cannot do on our own? You open our eyes to see that life with you is where life is found and joy is found and peace is found. May we not just desire the kingdom of God, but may we desire the king, knowing that the king is what makes it all worth it. God, will you do a work in our hearts today? May we truly chase after you with all that we have. May you be first and foremost in our affections because you are good and glorious and gracious to us. God, we love you. Here's something we pray.